regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I'll long form in that conversation with data male practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Grace Eastford, a principal investor based in Lux Capital's New York City office, which invests at the nexus of Web3, data infrastructure, and application of AIML, especially in healthcare and financial services. Grace seeks to invest in companies that leverage breakthrough technology to improve individual efficiency and agency. She focuses on crypto and blockchain infrastructure companies building the next-gen Web3 stack, as well as data and machining startups that are hyper-personalizing user experiences and transforming legacy industry. Before joining Lux Capital, Grace was the principal at Canvas Ventures, where she started as a campus scout while attending Stanford University before becoming a full-time investor in 2019. While there, she sourced 10 investments, including open-source robotic process automation platform Robocop and blockchain-powered real-time data sharing platform Vandia. So Grace, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Fabulous. By way of introduction, so while doing the homework for our conversation, I found out that you were originally from Connecticut and you also spent part of your childhood growing up in Tokyo. So could you mind sharing these formative experiences of your upbringing? Of course. Actually, one thing I may have not told you is my family is also Canadian. So while I've never lived in Canada, I'm also a dual citizen. In terms of childhood in Connecticut, you know, I grew up just outside New York City. So for me, I was heavily impacted, I would say, by the New York area, heavily influenced by financial services, investment banks, hedge funds, you know, typical things in the New York, Westchester, Fishville County area. So that really interested me from a young age in kind of the business side of things. And I was very intrigued by, you know, how do you build, grow, scale businesses, but also how do you invest in transformative companies, you know, more of a macro or or public uh, level or investment bank level than maybe, you know, early stage startups. I did have the uh, experience of living in Tokyo for a period of my childhood as well. That totally opened up my aperture to the wider world and and broadened my perspective uh, globally. Just Learned a lot from the different perspectives of many different people at my elementary school there. And then I came back to Connecticut where I graduated high school and, you know, had different friends and a whole different perspective. So, so both those experiences, I think the financial influence and then the international perspective and kind of learning and growing from those with diverse perspectives were, were two very formative aspects of my upbringing. Yeah, thank you so much. So glad that it seems that you have that global perspective influences growing up and then living in New York really allows you to knee deep into the financial services sector. But then for college, you actually went west and you decided to go to Stanford to study management science and engineering. Well, first of all, like, why did you decide to head to the Bay Area? And secondly, like, how would you describe your overall academic experience in Stanford? Totally. So 
I actually, you know, wanted to stay on the East Coast for college because Stanford was the only school I applied to in California. And I'm so glad I went there because I think it was very formative for me. Why I decided to go to Stanford When I visited during high school, I was struck by the intellectual curiosity of the campus. It felt very collaborative, sunny, beautiful environment that it seemed to almost encourage collaboration, curiosity, interconnectivity to build and grow and work on different projects, whether they were, you know, problem sets in class or or much larger kind of macro startup level problems. So that was what kind of encouraging you that true intellectual curiosity that I feel is palpable on the Stanford campus. In terms of my experience, that mapped pretty closely. I think from day one, you know, taking, you know, the more financially minded girl from the East Coast to Stanford, I was struck by the spirit of innovation and entrepreneurialism. So, so many of my friends were starting their own companies, were toying with different ideas. It was very much encouraged. And there was a lot of inspirations across campus, both in classes and outside of class in terms of, you know, not going down, you know, a specific rigid path in financial services or investment banking, and instead, you know, thinking more about entrepreneurship. And so that was a heavy impact on me. And I think we're going to talk a little bit later, but my experience with the Mayfield Fellowship Program, because that supercharged my interest in both the exciting and actually curiosity of being an effective member of a high growth startup. Mm, I see. So you come to Stanford with that financial kind of... I think I, I originally expected to go into college that I would come back to New York area and then, you know, do the traditional path. I would say that of many East Coast, you know, residences is kind of go into financial services and then do something else. Stanford really flipped that assumption on its head for me. And I thought, wow, you know, why would I do that when I could, you know, work at an early stage startup that has, you know, more meaningful impact and a better work-life balance? Or, you know, then I also learned about venture capital and, you know, why wouldn't I instead go work and, and help entrepreneurs make their dreams kind of a reality in these kind of really zany, uh, insane, often very contrarian ideas that we're bringing something new to the table versus, you know, continuing to support older stage your industries to a certain extent. For sure. And we'll definitely talk about that spirit of innovation in a little bit, but you mentioned that term intellectual curiosity a few times. And, and also I'm curious, like, what does the major management science and engineering entails? Good question. I describe it as a techie business major because it does, it is in the engineering school at Stanford and it does have the engineering core. So I did take, you know, CS classes and the classic Stanford engineering core, but it's also where the Stanford entrepreneurship department is housed. And so that's Stanford Technology Ventures Program. And I'm currently on the board of STVP, which houses a lot of the awesome programs like the Mayfield Fellowship Program, which is a work study tech and entrepreneurship program, as well as several other awesome fellowships and many other classes in the MSCE department on, you know, spirit of innovation, company building and ideation. So how I describe MSCE is a very interdisciplinary major. Uh, I took everything from economics, computer science, psychology, and entrepreneurship. But it was, for me, the perfect way to kind of scratch money itches and have a more well-rounded degree than just focusing on one specific core competency area. Do you have a favorite classes outside of all those? Oh, yeah, many. I really liked a class that Amir co-taught. Uh, it was actually a master's class in MSNE. It, it may have changed names since I was last there, but it was kind of co-taught by her and Mike Maples and the Floodgate crew. And they were really focused on, you know, how do you, evaluate and invest in kind of thunder lizards and early stage startups. And if you look up thunder lizards, it's kind of how they describe a little bit of what they're searching for mm-hmm. as early stage pre-seed investors. 
And so again, why I liked MSNE for, for many reasons is because it was able to have that perfect confluence of both practitioners and, and real world, and also thinking about it through a more interdisciplinary lens. And of course, the major fellowship program also had a series of classes. So that was fantastic too. That's a great transition to my next question. So besides academic, you participate in the Mayfield Fellowship Program. And additionally, you also serve as the co-president of Stanford Women in Business. How did this program affect your Stanford experience? The Mayfield Fellowship Program was incredible. So again, it's a work-study program. It's actually a nine-month program, which, you know, is, is far longer. You know, typical classes at Stanford are just one quarter, so a few months. And so this was three times the average length of a class, combined with it was just one cohort of students. So I was just one of 12 students in this cohort. And the way it's structured is it's you learn one, do one, teach one. So the spring quarter, you focus on learning about what it means to be an effective member of a high-growth startup. You get the very, you know, good fortune of getting to meet lots of very effective players in the startup and venture ecosystem and really just learning more about what startups are about, right? And more specifically, what are the tools and what is kind of the real goal of entrepreneurship, right? It's to truly grow and solve intractable problems and leverage new problems as new opportunities. In the summer, you work at a high growth startup as an internship, and then you also, you know, have this interdisciplinary relationship again where you get to know other fellows of startups and their experiences and you journal and reflect on it. Mm-hmm. And in the fall, you teach a class actually to your other peers where you kind of synthesize a lot of your insights from working at that startup on a specific area. But more importantly, the, the best part of it was the people. So, you know, at the time I was taught by Tom Byers and Tina Seelig, both incredible. Now Amirco is heavily involved as well. And she's incredible as well. And it's just this kind of cohort of awesome people who, again, are very intellectually curious, but very focused also on kind of the startup and entrepreneurship realm, which uh, can be super valuable for someone who wants to at least learn or or think about what their career could be like working as a member of a high growth startup or venture capital firm. Yeah, that sounds amazing that you'd be able to gain that particular experience and then actually disseminate that knowledge to you know, your fellows teach it. It's like you double down and relearn some of the knowledge, right? Totally. And then I, I didn't speak of the Stanford Women in Business Experience, but I, I actually joined their organization when I was a freshman at Stanford. Okay. It's the largest pre-professional organization for women at Stanford. And, and so pretty proud to have been a part of it. I grew up kind of through the organization as well, was actually met, you know, the Canvas Ventures team, which we'll talk about later through a peer in Stanford Women in Business, and then served as president my final year at Stanford there. What I really enjoyed about it was, again, that like-minded group and peer group where you could support and learn from one another. Mm-hmm. I think even though MSNE or management science and engineering was the techie business major, I didn't really feel like Stanford prepared me that well from the business side of things. So, you know, professional etiquette, you know, emailing, resume, interview skills, right? All those sorts of things that, you know, are, are very indicative of a business degree. I got a lot of that out of that uh, Stanford Women in Business experience. And I know a lot of my peers at Stanford got a lot of not just that organization, but other ones like bases or others that were more focused on, you know, extracurricular ways to, to sharpen your skills. I see. So I'm curious, like as president of Stanford Women in Business, you're responsible for like coordinating and setting up programming events, right? Yep. What are some of those networking events, meeting with Yeah, the cool thing about Stanford Women in Business is we were very broad and horizontal across business sectors. So, for example, I would go, you know, into you know everything from investment bank offices to consulting offices to startup offices to VC offices, and so we really tried to show a holistic view to even nonprofit and impact focused organizations and illustrate you know, and give a taste by talking to true practitioners in each of those industries as to what a job might be like and kind of get a better 
understanding for what a career might be like in that space. So for me, it was uh, immeasurably helpful to understand why I might be more excited, for example, like a tech or venture job than maybe another one. We'll talk about it later on, like towards the end of commission, but I feel like this surface yeah. of foundation for you, for all of your community building work with like a lot of women led organization later on. It's a great point, right? I think it's something I've always been passionate about. We didn't talk about this, but I actually also went to an all-girls school growing up. And I think it's always been really important for me to increase female representation, uh, both in terms of, you know, other peers I work with, but also in terms of, you know, companies I invest in, operators and angels I'm bringing into deals, and just kind of trying to close the gap a bit to the extent I can play my part. Absolutely. Continuing back into your experience at Stanford, you know, besides academics and entrepreneurial activities, you also did a variety of internships. You work on the LP side of Stanford's management company. You work in product management at Tech Startup Handshake. You know, so did a little bit of growth equity at Stripes Group. What was some of the valuable lesson that you learned from these working experiences? Good question. And often when I give advice to folks who are thinking about their careers, I, I really encourage them for each internship to take advantage of trying something very different. So they can almost taste tests and learn what they like and don't like. I think internships are so valuable uh, from that perspective. And for me, it was certainly true. So I worked at the Stanford management company, that Stanford's endowment. You manage tens of billions of dollars now, uh, far larger than even when I worked there. A really great opportunity to understand what it's like on the LP side, right? And so as many people know, uh, LPs uh, or limited partners do invest in venture firms like Lux, and then Lux invests in startups, right? And so it was really cool to see the other side of, you know, the LP side, which I think a lot of VCs don't fully understand, right? And ultimately our goal at Lux is to try to further kind of our assets and our returns for LPs to support organizations and institutions like Stanford or other endowments to kind of support posterity. So that was pretty cool. I learned a lot about the macro perspective from there and kind of how, you know, venture capital fits into private equity within a much larger pool of asset classes from public equities to natural resources to real estate, right? And understanding how VC fits into that. I guess what I didn't like about it is I felt it was very much at arm's length. So even though, you know, I would invest in, in VC managers who invest in companies, I didn't really have that startup experience or the relationship with the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And, and so yeah. I, I definitely took kind of the opposite uh, direction afterwards working at Handshake. Handshake is an ed tech startup. I often call it a LinkedIn for college students. And when I worked there, you know, they were sub 100 mil valuation, maybe 60, 70 employees. And now they're 3.5 billion in valuation and, and 500 employees. So it was an incredible opportunity to work with the team and, and credit to, to the Handshake founding team for what they've built and how they've been able to kind of grow the business as well. Uh, I worked in product there. I think what I really enjoyed about it was, again, that more you know hands-on uh, relationship with a product and a company and really resonated with Handshake's mission. Talent was universal, but access to opportunity really wasn't. And so that was really uh, exciting for me. Ultimately, I think what I learned from that was it was how to build a big product, how to ask the why questions and think about, you know, how do you architect and think about, you know, each of your product sprints and how those product sprints align to a North Star goal for the company growth and development. Ultimately, I kind of wanted then more of a in-between view. So not as high level as macro as the LP side and not as, you know, in the weeds as the product side of a startup. And so that's let me to Stripes, uh, which was a growth equity opportunity. Great way to kind of get a sense of, you know, how do you evaluate company at a slightly more growth stage, but still having a bit more of that relationship with the entrepreneur. So I hope that answers your questions. Definitely got, you know, the LP operating and kind of the growth equity side uh, throughout my different internship experience as that sort of taste test. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like you, you sort of traverse the spectrum of yeah. <laughs> the entrepreneurial ecosystem all the way from you know, limited partners to in the weights to everything in between. And what I felt to be really nice, you're like intentional about doing it as well. Totally. Yeah. And for me, right. It was also uh, all three of those internships were at slightly different locations as well and, and slightly different team sizes. And so I learned a lot about myself and, and what sort of working environments and, and locations were energizing to me. For sure. And I suppose it's always the end of your Stanford experience, you finding the, what sort of career attracted you, right? Why you were still a student at Stanford, you start working with kind of as ventures as a campus scout. The goal here, I believe, is just to connect them with some of the awesome Stanford companies and students. And after completing your master, you actually transitioned to join the firm full-time. I'm curious, what about the Canvas team that sustained your interest in working with them? Yeah. So as we discussed slightly earlier, I, I did start working on campus as a part-time campus scout or liaison. And so I was helping them get to know awesome deals and awesome operators on the Stanford campus and kind of helping them increase connectivity. And so the cool thing about that was I was able to learn very quickly from a young age, you know, what venture capital was, you know, as we often talk about, especially historically, but even so today, it's still difficult uh, to get a job in venture and there's not really clear job posting. So I start, I wanted to work with them because I wanted to have a job in venture, to be frank, right? I was really excited to just learn more, scratch this itch, pursue a potential passion opportunity, given my interest from Stanford Women in Business and understand and Mayfield on understanding kind of the tech and venture side of things. So that was what initially pursued was the initial ignite of interest. As I mentioned, I got introduced through another Stanford Women in Business peer. And I actually heard Rebecca Lynn, one of the female co-founders of Canvas, speak on a panel at an event early in my experience at Stanford. And really, you know, inspired by her, as I am of, of many women who have founded their own firms uh, in the venture industry. So that was another reason why I was excited to kind of join Canvas to kind of pursue and, and learn from another female leader uh, in the space. I see. So I guess like between the time when you become a scout until you become full-time, you maintain that relationship with them in a part-time capacity and feeling out like the way to you know, keep connection, right? Like it's not too hard for you to break into venture because you already have that connection. Right. Yeah, and it was lucky too because you know I got the taste test of working with them, and they got the taste test of me. Uh, and so, to anyone who would be interested in pursuing venture, right, I would encourage you to try to work part time or do something, you know, in a scout capacity while you're still, you know, at an undergrad or master's program, because it's a great way, again, low risk way for both of you to get to know if you actually like each other, and then, you know, oftentimes can be a natural transition to a full time opportunity. Absolutely. And and for those who are not familiar with Canvas Ventures, can you? maybe provide a brief overview about the focus in terms of growth stage and sector as well? Of course. So Camus Ventures is an early stage venture fund. It's a generalist venture fund uh, based in the Bay Area and California. Three main focus areas, enterprise, fintech, and healthcare. I focus mostly on B2B investments there and the enterprise data ML infrastructure stacks. I think we're going to talk a little bit about later, uh, as well as on the B2B fintech side. Made, you know, roughly 12 investments when I was there. The firm manages just under, you know, 1 billion today. When you joined for full time, out of curiosity, as a new, you know, associate at the firm, how did you prove your value upfront in potential deals and start forming your investment thesis? 
Yeah, I think it's a few things, right? First, it's just working hard, right? I, I think this job and venture capital is kind of learned through doing. And so um, there's lots of ways to do the job well. You know, you can read a lot and try to become the expert in different thesis areas. You can, you know, talk to experts and try to refine your thesis and grow in certain areas. You can, you know, be a major networker and just get to know, you know, every entrepreneurship club or, or student or early stage entrepreneur. So there's many good ways to do the job. I think, you know, for me, it was combination of the three. It's one was leveraging my network, which fortunately was already very strong from both the Mayfield and Stanford networks and some of my past internship experiences that I mentioned. Two, it was, you know, trying to cultivate circles of competence. I'm a big believer in the theory of, you know, where is your true circle of knowledge or where do you actually have asymmetric uh, information maybe compared to others? probably because of research and you've done. And so I cultivated that by creating kind of a data network where I featured a lot of awesome heads of data and ML across major Silicon Valley and in, you know, New York based startups that provided a cool perspective in terms of the areas of opportunity for an investment perspective. And then it's just, you know, working hard, right? I, I think venture definitely is an industry that rewards people who hustle and work hard. And I know it maybe seems like, you know, a cop out answer, but I do think I just worked really hard in my early days at Canvas that I still kind of do today at Lox to kind of prove my value because I knew I had less experience than a lot of other folks maybe uh, in my position. So three things, leveraging your past network based on your Stanford circle. And then I really like your part about that term, building the circle of competence, connecting with practitioners in the field, and then create a mindshare community, learning from them and build up for your own hypothesis. And then the last part is about working hard, really about intensity and work ethic, right? Yeah, I think that's a very well-nuanced answer. I'm curious, what does working hard actually look like, especially in the early days? How do you measure progress? Hard question, right? I think no one day in venture is really the same. And I think most VCs would say that. But one thing that is the same is that there's a lot of meetings. So a lot of my days meeting with new entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs you know, I'm continuing diligence with, expert calls or diligence calls to validate a hypothesis or thesis, whether for an investment or a prospective investment opportunity, working with portfolio companies that we've already invested in, helping them on everything from go-to-market to hiring to customer intros, et cetera, or helping them with their next funding round, even perhaps meeting with other investors, you know, same stage growth investors, uh, and then meet with my team. So every day can vary in the actual schedule, but those are the sorts of things that I'm typically doing in terms of meetings. Otherwise, it's lots of time to think, right, and synthesize the learnings from those different meetings in terms of, you know, my own investment thesis for a given sector or, you know, new investment area opportunity. I see. Because you mentioned you focus on a couple of different sectors, right? Let's say if you jump into a new investment sector that you like not super familiar with, let's say AI, ML versus enterprise versus fintech, how do you quickly level up, you know, and draw knowledge in a certain sector? Because I suppose you have to prioritize your attention and focus across this different focus, right? Yeah, I think it's learning and reading, right? There are certain publications that are great, but per sector, there are some that are, you know, specific to, you know, fintech or specific to AI, ML or specific to data, right? And, and so I would leverage that. And then I would just go out in the field, talk to companies and experts, and then, you know, develop a circle of competence or area of expertise, maybe even in a, a more niche area of a broader topic, rather than trying to talk all of fintech. Maybe I'll focus on B2B fintech or, you know, a specific subsector of that where I can, you know, get a greater perspective. Awesome. We definitely talk about like some of the details, the research you have been doing lately with crypto and blockchain infrastructure, but I just kind of want to investigate a couple of your most impactful investments at Canvas just to kind of walk through your mental models when you make this investment. In early 2021, you saw a Series A investment in Vanya, a blockchain-powered real-time data sharing platform 
that shows they're growing into organization data collaboration problem? What are the key factors that trigger you to make this investment? Great question. So Vendi actually came out of a data thesis I had. And so talking about my investment thesis process, I had a circle of data experts. I interviewed at least, you know, 20, 30, maybe even more uh, folks who were experts across the data ML infrastructure space and realized that data sharing was a really intractable problem. So I was looking for a solution to that problem. Met with lots of companies, found Vendia just literally through that research. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. They're doing a serverless blockchain solution to the data sharing problem. So then going too into the weeds of what Vendia does, they marry serverless technology. So it's founded by the founder of AWS Lambda, Tim Wagner, with blockchain. Uh, the other co-founder, Shruti, was the leader of Amazon Managed Blockchain. And so they're enabling organizations to share multi-million data points at scale by leveraging this really cool blockchain tech. And so for that one, you know, once I talked to the team, they're incredible. So team was a key aspect there. Two, I knew the market opportunity was large and that the problem was large, just given my research in the space. And then three, uh, talking to customers, which is what I always do, you know, as we get close to the making an investment is the customer love, right? And trying to quantify that, whether in terms of qualitative data points, talking to customers and entering them or quantitative in terms of, you know, what they're paying or, or what they plan to pay or how they're engaged with the product. And those really shown through that it was by far beyond uh, the best technical solution that was easy to use and implement from a product market fit perspective. So a combination of those things uh, made me really excited to make an investment in Vendia. I see yeah, the credibility of the team, the market problem after you're talking, interviewing a bunch of practitioners in the data and infrastructure space, as well as validation of the product, product market fit, customer love. So those are the key combination of all those, making you more confident into investing in Vendia. Another one that I want to talk about is this year's investment in Robocop. I suppose it was announced in mid-2021. They offer the best cloud-native open-source automation stack orchestration platform to power any automation process. What about the product Robocop team that resonated with you? Yeah, um, so this was another very thesis-driven investment. I had a deep RPA thesis at Canvas and realized that, okay, you know, even though RPA was this massive category, saw the IPO of UiPath and massive market caps of other players in the space, Realizing that there was fundamentally a disconnect in the ecosystem between, you know, high lock-in, inflexible and expensive licenses versus, you know, an opportunity to democratize uh, the ecosystem over time. So in Robocorp's case, right, it was the opportunity to democratize from these highly inflexible, expensive licenses of UiPath and bring that technology to the mass market with an open source RPA technology. So it was the first open source RPA company uh, rooted out of this amazing RPA framework, which is actually leveraging a team in Helsinki product end perspective. So that was kind of the central thesis there, opportunity to truly bring disruptive technology down market and greater accessibility at scale, combined with a very strong uh, technical founding team uh, with Auntie and others. So, so that was the predication of that investment. Is the market size of RPA and the novelty of technology as the first open source platform and the technical team as well? Kind of reflecting on some of your experience sourcing deals and seeing on the cap tables of various early stage companies while working at Canvas, what advice have you given your portfolio companies in hiring decision and navigating product slash go-to-market strategy? 
many uh, and constantly giving advice. So I think we'd be here for many hours if we talked through all the advice I gave, but I'll just kind of stick with three that were pretty consistent. One is on hiring. If it's not a hell yes, it's a no, right? Keep a high bar for hiring. I think that's the number one issue. It's hard to obviously hire a lot of great people. It's also hard to keep the bar high. So I encourage companies that hire people who are, you know, better than them in many ways, right? Or that add differentiated skills that are better than maybe the existing skill set of the team and every new hire, especially early days. So high bar on hiring, that is is hiring towards the DNA that the company wants to, to build towards. Two, on go-to-market strategy, focus, focus, focus. I often find companies from the go-to-market perspective want to do a lot and often have horizontal technology platforms that can do a lot, but it's much better to focus and get rid of pitability in one area or for one sub-segment of customer and then sequencing it and then doing the other hills over time. So focus and find repeatability. And then the third is just, you know, really think about, you know, how you're going to grow your wedge over time. I encourage all the companies I work with to think about how you become a true platform company and be able to grow not just you know your ACV or your contract size, but also your product suite and thinking strategically about how each new product addition and or each new you know launch or product line, et cetera, is building towards kind of that North Star goal. So hiring is really setting the hiring bar high, try to hire people who are smarter than you and go to market is focused, try to find channels that repeatable and replicable and then product is like how do you find the right partners customer in order to not just satisfy short-term revenue gain but also expand it into like becoming a platform which is i think the biggest mode that any startup can become that's sort of across the spectrum to that point about you know sitting on the cap table earlier you know we talked about you know how do you prove value when you working in a firm towards your fellow investors and now you know when you like becoming a board member how do you add value to like your fellow portfolio companies yeah when you become board member you know i guess there's a lot of more like legal or, or paperwork things that change right you just have more governance responsibilities uh, which are really important to think about but otherwise i think my right role with the company stays the same right i'm still super active on hiring go to market strategy still super active on customer intros etc it may just you know add the added dynamic of, of working with the board for maybe you know more governance related decisions in particular and, and having you know more of a formal you know if you are meeting once a quarter but otherwise i view it you know a lot of the same things I, i'm doing in both cases I see. So maintaining your thesis or your value plus an additional layer of governance and administrative tasks, I would say. Yeah. Fabulous. What I also really like about you is that you open source your investment thesis throughout your writing. And that's like a very awesome thing because, you know, it attracted you know, entrepreneurs to you, but also like allows you to reflect on and update your thesis over time. So next couple of questions, I just want to go over some of your you know most comprehensive research that I was able to file. Back in 2020, you've written a very well-researched two-part series on the third-party API economy, which covers the emerging third-party API categories and proposed an API pricing framework. So what are some of the trends in the API-first economy that you are most excited about in the coming years? Yeah, thank you for that. I think open sourcing and investment thesis is a cool way of thinking about it. I generally do like to open source theses and talk to them with experts, with entrepreneurs, with the public, right? Because I think everyone has something to offer and it can only make the thesis better, right? As I can get more perspective, especially from practitioners in the space. In terms of the third-party API thesis and as I think about going forward, the same thesis around API-first companies offering something that's critical but non-core 
like payments for e-commerce companies such as Stripe, while abstracting away the complexity is something that I think will maintain going forward across different sectors. I think what trends I'm seeing, one, you know, more international API-first companies. So all the awesome companies I featured in my doc, you know, happening internationally in fintech, in healthcare, in data, in e-commerce, et cetera. And then the two, uh, which we'll talk more about later, is API-first companies in the crypto blockchain space. So how do we abstract away the complexity of leveraging the blockchain, working with blockchain data? How do we, you know, make it critical but non-core to work with crypto fintech payments in general? And so those are two trends I think we'll see more companies developed in the API-first space coming forward. I see. So internationalization of API-first startup as well as adapting the product for crypto and blockchain infrastructure, right? Thanks a lot for sharing that perspective. And we should include the two pieces into the show notes as well, because list out like, especially the pricing framework, that was very interesting because you map the value with the actual weight business concrete model of how it's supposed to be. You have written another in-depth article called The Mindset of a Data Leader, which prompt data vendors to ask questions like, what are the biggest pain points for data leaders? How to sell product to data leaders? And how do data leaders evaluate new products? Would you mind unpacking some of the key takeaway in that piece? Definitely. So this was an article that was a culmination of a lot of the work I did interviewing the data expert network as part of my data thesis, which I mentioned earlier. This was included to try to help a prospective data entrepreneur get product market fit and start to think about go to market. And, And so it's really focused around the specific value that the product is providing, the pain points it's addressing, and then how you're thinking about selling that product with that value proposition into a given person with, you know, the budget to pay for it, right? So it's a series of questions. I think a key framework here is just one, focusing on creating a product that's actually solving for a problem. You'd be surprised how many times I see companies, you know, develop, but they haven't actually addressed a pain point, right? And so always go for where there's the greatest pain for your end user, where you can truly provide value because customers are way more willing to both adopt the product and pay for it if you're solving a problem for them, right? Two is how do you sell the product, right? Are you going through a lengthy, you know, sales process where you're talking to much people in the org, but you're not actually talking to the person with the purse strings or the opportunity to make the purchase? And so really do you think about who you're targeting and how your price points and your pricing strategy aligns with their budget? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, three, just thinking about how do you make it, you know, fast time to value that's easily usable and accessible without, you know, too much of a lift on the other team side. Right. And so those are three tips I would keep in mind for any company, you know, across any sector, whether it's data first or API first or crypto first, but specifically in the data case that was born out of interviews with many folks in the data and ML space. I see. First being a product, actually, I should pay yeah. by how to sell a product and focus on that go-to-market emotion. And then last one, how to make the product self-serve and easy adoptable way actually be within enterprise, right? Earlier this year, you published this incredibly detailed text on the Web3 world, you know, and I'd be sure to put that in the show notes as well. It's very well researched, multiple slides that I highly recommend reading. What trends in Web3 that you think will have a disproportionately massive impact in the future? And vice versa, what trends that you think are overhyped? Totally. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's another example of open sourcing the deck. And I definitely think it's, it's out of date at this point because the Web3 ecosystem is moving so quickly, but hope it can be helpful, especially for folks who may be on the Web2 world side, trying to get their feet wet in, in Web3. So in terms of trends that I think will have disproportionately massive impact, one is crypto and Web3 infrastructure. So back to your thing on underhyped versus overhyped, I think, you know, 
Web3 infrastructure is underhyped. And I think a lot of the Web3 application and metaverse layer is overhyped. So I think we're seeing a lot of folks talking about the next, you know, consumer apps atop Web3 or the next gaming company atop Web3, which is awesome. And I think we should have many of those companies. I don't think people are thinking enough about the infrastructure that needs to exist in order for those companies to happen. So I view it actually very similarly uh, to the early days of the ML stack. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, I remember a few years ago, I really wanted to invest in ML because I thought it was awesome and cool. And it's kind of sexy relative to, you know, the infrastructure side of things. And I think in many ways, Web3 metaverse applications are sexier too. you know, investing in things that are leveraging, you know, decentralized infrastructure or working on top sounds more exciting. However, I think we're going to see a point and we haven't even quite seen that adoption yet of Web3 where we need both a better crypto developer stack a crypto data stack, crypto privacy scaling infrastructure reliability stack, crypto financial infrastructure stack, among other things. Those are just certain examples in order to enable any of those applications to function and that scale for 100 million plus users. Reminds me exactly of the data stack early days where everyone, again, wanted to invest in the ML companies, but we actually need to build the infrastructure and the data systems in place from scaling to cleaning to cleansing to pipelines in order for you know the next 100 million data points to be leveraged uh, from an ml application on top so that's what i would double click on um anyone building anything in the crypto web3 infrastructure space in any of those spaces i mentioned would love to talk to you for sure the application layer is over high and the infrastructure bottom up to like enable those application to be built is under high right and you know double click on that point in your deck ULI, there are five major categories of the Web3 infrastructure, including decentralized finance, decentralized applications, decentralized autonomous organization, NFT non-fungible tokens, and then go education slash reskilling. So can you dissect you know, these categories in further detail, especially for the uninitiated? Yeah. And for anyone, again, new to the space, would recommend taking a look at the deck because there's a much better diagram that I'm going to do verbally, which explains how they all fit together. But essentially, in the Web3 world, everything is built atop a blockchain in some way or related to a blockchain in some way, right? Obviously, easy purposes. We could just use Ethereum for our purposes today. And then there's a series of apps that are kind of built on top of them, right? So one is decentralized finance. These are a series of companies providing different financial systems from everything from lending to borrowing to financial transactions top of the blockchain. Two is decentralized apps. So these are usually apps leveraging decentralized data networks or backends for specific end use case or functions. Otherwise, you know, as you and I interact with them, they may look similar to any application today. Mm-hmm. DAOs are decentralized autonomous organizations. These are pretty cool organizations, or I think we're going to see more of them over time. They're actually recognized as LLCs in the state of Wyoming. Um, and essentially, there are organizations where individuals have ownership in the organization, often through a purchase, such as a token, and then are being rewarded with you know votes and governance in the organization proportionate to either their participation or, or their ownership often with specific purposes, whether they be social or, you know, in technical, lots of different types of DAOs. And there's a bunch out there, they're growing every day. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. A simple way of thinking about them is, you know, JPEGs on a blockchain. Obviously on OpenSea today, you can go and, and trade different NFTs. Often there's, you know, cool novelty project value, of specific scarcity things that make some projects more or less expensive or unique. And then guild education would be kind of the last one. And 
And this is one I probably spent a little bit less time in, but it's the whole space of, you know, play to earn gaming. How do you learn, grow, and gain skills for specific games or specific functions in kind of the Web3 world? So hope that gives a little bit of an overview. Uh, the key thing to remember is these are all just different corners of the Web3 world and illustrative of how big the space is. And there's many more categories that we're probably not even going to be able to cover today, given how big and quickly evolving the space is. Yeah. And I believe you're also in the process of writing a new post on Web 2.5, if I'm correct. And could you want to share anything, any details about that? Yes. Yeah. Um, coming soon. Basically, it's kind of an evolution of the Web 3 thesis where I realized back to the earlier point of the underhyped versus overhyped that we're not thinking enough about the infrastructure. And we're yeah. not thinking about how do we bridge people, especially from the Web 2 institutional world, whether you're institutional finance, you know, whether you're a web to, you know, data company or just a web to application that wants to maybe out on crypto or, you know, add decentralized application, but doesn't have the tools to do so. And so that's kind of a category of companies I'm very excited about because I don't think we've increased enough accessibility and adoption to the space. So, so anything from the UI UX layer of how do you onboard to crypto down to the, the crypto infrastructure layer of how do you, you know, scale a backend application to be either decentralized or to, to add on crypto rails. Yeah, for sure. Just a quick note on the deck. As I read through it, towards the end of the deck, you have a small section explaining like why you were excited about it. And you have like three things, massive positive societal implication of open finance, implication of Web3 and self-serving ownership and control of data, and then paradigm shift in business model, right? Yeah, and these are very transformative, you know, impact. I feel like just from reading at them, and you provide a little more detail on like how do you become excited and, and maybe what is like future of software with Web3 might look like. Totally. Well, yeah, again, I think the deck points out a few main areas. I think as you think about Web3, it's really where value is accruing to the owners and users uh, versus to massive corporations, right? And that manifests itself in terms of you know, ownership of your own data, in terms of you know value accruing to you proportionate to your ownership, for example, and then also in terms of working and, and getting value proportionate to your own investment. So I think all those things are, are really exciting and there haven't really been structures or incentive engineering in place in order to facilitate that in, in many of the Web2 companies we invested in. They have much more profit machines or profit centers for large organizations. So I just would double underline the things you just mentioned and why now with the right infrastructure, we have the opportunity for many more applications across sectors, across geos, across borders, across, you know, everywhere to let value accrue more to the users versus centralized organizations. Yeah. Decentralization of finance and data will definitely make a change into the business model of them as well. Thanks a lot for sharing all of those perspectives. And, you know, I think I'm definitely excited to read and see more of your hypothesis, thesis and research as well as investment for startups that are building this layer of crypto and blockchain and what to infrastructure. Stand back with your current role at the moment. Since March of 2022, early this year, you've been a principal investor at Lux Capital, a firm that invests in emerging science and technology ventures at the outermost edges of what is possible. What about Lux investment strategy that attracted you to join the firm? Definitely. And so I actually did join Lux in February 2022, but very recently, to your point, and joined as a principal. Just a little bit about Lux. We manage $4 billion AUM. Our seventh fund is $1.5 billion, and we're based between New York and the Bay Area, and I currently live in New York. We invest in pre-seed to growth, and what attracted me to join is 
you know, willingness to do things differently. I think a lot of venture firms these days are kind of coinciding more to the status quo and Lux truly invests at the intersection of tech and science. So what does that mean? You know, well, all our investments, a key common characteristic is investing in true technology companies and technology platforms, whether, you know, data first, AI, ML first, tech first, biotech first, physical or hardware tech first. I think about three main areas. One is the computational sciences, which is where I focus. So blockchain, AI, ML, data, API first, fintech, et cetera. The life sciences. So lots of awesome investments. It's been a little bit less new tech time science companies. And then we have a lot of awesome investments across both defense, space, hardware. A recent example I was funny was recently announced was Hadrian in kind of the space sector, which is doing some really cool stuff. So Lux's strategy is, you know, doing things differently, investing in contrarian, inventing the future, and really trying to invest in moonshot-like companies that have a tech first underpinning. And so that really attracted to me. I think we have a very exciting brand and exciting opportunity to create that portfolio of companies that have the greatest impact. And that's what's most energizing for me is investing in the most impactful entrepreneurs. I see. So competition of science, life sciences, and defense technology as well. Honestly, I really like the word that you just mentioned, which is investing in moonshot technology. And I feel like that's like several layers of upgrade in terms of the way you have to think about your investment strategy. So when you say like investing in moonshot technology, what does it actually means? Yeah. I mean, investing in things that people think are crazy, like going to the moon or beyond, right? And I think venture capital is a business of taking big risk and big bets. And I worry that a lot of the venture industry today is focusing more on safe bets, right? And things that maybe aren't truly, you know, changing the future or being contrarian. If you think of all the most, you know, amazing, massive companies, a lot of them did start out as things that most people thought were crazy or weird or different, right? And so, you know, Airbnb, people didn't think you should be, you know, sleeping in other people's houses, right? Uber, why would you get in someone else's car, right? And, and so it's been cool to see confluence of massive companies being built, doing things that may seem crazy, risky, or different than the status quo. And so that's important. I would encourage all VCs to be thinking more from that perspective, because we're trying to invest in true technology innovation versus just incremental innovation that may not be actually changing the status quo. Absolutely. And just one for the listener to hear, like Max Capital have a really cool newsletter that I've been subscribing for a while. They have also have a new podcast that's released. And I personally listen to a lot of interviews with Josh Worth. So I think, you know, the firm is doing awesome things to like push the edge to your point, that intersection between technology and science. And just to name a couple of the investment, you know, Andrew, Applied Intuition, Benchling, FTX, having faced some of those are definitely big names in their respective field. So at Lux, you invest in the nexus of Web3 data infrastructure and application of AI and ML, especially in the healthcare and financial services. As an early stage investor, and especially in the context of Lux, what is the typical mental checklist that you use to evaluate entrepreneurs and make investment decisions? I think it's similar a bit to the checklist earlier, right? I think one is a really ambitious founder who has a strong perspective or point of view, right? So a founder who has a conviction in their belief for why the world should be the way it should be with their company in it, and often relevant expertise or research or just a well coherent thesis around why that will be the case. So one is just, you know, really awesome, ambitious team uh, with a clear vision for the future. Two is true technology, right? What is the technology and product, whether, you know, there's IPs or patents or just, you know, taking a different approach to solving the problem from a technology perspective, having a strong technological core is important to any investment I do make. And then three, you know, I call it customer love. Uh, what are the early 
signs or traction in terms of qualitative or quantitative data points around why, you know, the approach that this person is taking and technology they are offering is making ultimately the end customer happy. Semblances and signs of early product market fit and go to market fit is also what I look for. Yeah, team product and customer love. And, you know, because you mentioned earlier, Lux has an office in New York and the Bay Area as well. I just suppose that's sort of the main focus of some of your fighting, right? Is Lux also looking at international companies? And, and if so, like geographically speaking, how do you source potential entrepreneur to speak with? Yeah, you know, broad mandate, I focus mostly uh, on North America and the US right now, but opportunities to be able to look at things elsewhere. Majority of investments have been in the US today. Definitely excited to see, you know, some of your future investment in Lux and see, you know, how the next generation of this company and what we did in front and AML application can look like. Besides some of your main work as an investor, you're also an active member of ORACE, which is a community focused on accelerating the success of female and non-binary fathers and funders. You also frequently organize events such as uh, bringing female fintech operators together or hosting brunch for women in Web3. Um, so I'm curious, like, you know, what are some of the ingredients of your community building playbook to promote women's voice in tech? Yeah, super important to me. Super happy to be a member of ORACE and continue to be involved with Stanford Women in Business as well. I think it's it's just in general, there's maybe not a playbook. It's more just, you know, encouraging and investing and operating and working with more women, right? And so where I view my role is just kind of a connectivity node or a routing source to connect awesome investors, angels, operators to other investor angels, operators, and trying to consistently be sure. And I'm constantly working on improving this, that my own network is diverse and that I'm constantly, you know, including folks from all different backgrounds to one another. Because I do think it is kind of the investor's role to help companies not just only recruit a diverse cap table, but also recruit, you know, a diverse uh, group of employees as well. So all those things, just routing, growing network to the extent, you know, you're a woman listening to this who is interested in angel investing, for example, I'm starting you know, different, you know, angel matching syndicates for folks. And so, you know, would always be happy to help and reach out and, and if there's any company in the Lux portfolio you're interested in working on, you know, loud cry here just to contact me or someone else in the Lux team. And we'd love to have you. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate how do you actively adding value back to the community by creating this forum and then letting different operators and entrepreneurs to get together and, you know, have those conversation. And, you know, that's the secret thing for the community. So I want to round up our main conversation on actually on that note, because I'm ever curious to hear more on your daily practice to cultivate that. So as I read Lux's announcement of you joining in the Medium article, there was this quote, it said, why Grace has an exemplary track record and as an avid runner and cyclist, a competitive streak to back the best fighting teams in the world. It was her warm personality, helpfulness and toughness in every interaction that most attracted us to her. As our entire team view a relationship with her, we've been consistently impressed with her resourcefulness and good spiritness to her father's team and community. On a personal level, how do you maintain the consistency of adding value to every conversation with people in your community? It's a good question. And I'm, I'm constantly working on it, right? I think it's a few things. One is just always trying to find a way to be helpful and asking someone, you know, what can I help you with? 
or thinking, you know, proactively about ways that could help uh, based on your area, you know, even right in this interaction, I can probably think of a few folks that would be great, you know, future interviewees for your podcast, James, right? And, and so those are easy things. If you just get in the habit of doing that uh, and thinking about ways to help people first before expecting anything in return, I think it's a great practice to be in. And, you know, maybe in the future, if I needed, you know, a, a favor from James, he'll be more likely to, to help me out uh, given maybe I was helpful once in the past, right? But we really help without expecting anything in return. And usually it will pay dividends over time. I think too is I do, and I'm working on this, is just trying to limit interactions so they can all be high value. So for example, if you email me and you ask for time, right, I've been trying to guardrail and say no to more meetings, happy to help asynchronously, for example, but only focus, you know, on investments or people who are more in my circle of competence where I can actually think I can be most helpful or I have a network or I have, you know, point of view or it's in the Lux mandate of investment area versus, and trying to overextend myself because I'm taking too many meetings. I'm not going to be as helpful or as, you know, energized for any one of them. So those are a few things I think about, uh, but definitely constantly a work in progress. And I appreciate it. I see. First part is like trying to adding value first without expectation to return anything back. And then second part is really about trying to say no more often to low value conversation and try to focus on some of the higher value interaction where you know that you'll be able to put all your attention, presence and contribution to those things, right? I mean, I'm so glad that I, I got a chance to have this conversation with you because you already add a lot of value to the, a lot of the listeners just based on, you know, your journey as well as your thought and perspective on that. So Chris, at this small conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can, yeah, just provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the venture community whose work you admire. Yeah, uh, one, Fred Wilson and Union Square Ventures really admire their thesis-driven approach. Often they open source their investment theses and really are thinking, you know, from a macro perspective about trends, network effects, community engagement, et cetera. Also, Spear had a lot of really interesting work in the crypto blockchain infrastructure space. Two would be Paradigm, Matt Wall and Fred some what they've built and how they're thinking about kind of productizing and reinventing the venture industry and what that can mean, I think it is really quite interesting. And then the third, Kitty Hahn, she just, you know, her work trailblazing the VC industry, she raised the largest one ever raised by a woman. And just combining her background and area of interest, I think are really great, you know, role model for, for other folks who are looking to maybe start their own funds in the future. Absolutely. I definitely include those profiles in the show notes so people can follow and, and take a look at. And I think all of them have some sort of crypto and blockchain thesis that definitely worth being taking a look. Number two, name one book that we recommend for people to cultivate better foresight. Yeah. Um, so the book I thought about is less about foresight and more about like awareness of yourself and your own biases. Cause I think if you have good awareness of yourself, it will help you with foresight and kind of honing your lens going forward. And, and so the book I recommend is Wanting by Luke Burgess. It's about mimetic desire and, and illustrates the manifestations of mimeticism in your own life. So this is on how do you form models of your own desire. Uh, they're usually modeled after models of other people and other things you've seen. And so just being aware of all the influences on your life, your biases and kind of your desires. Very cool book to just read at some point. I see. Just one note on that. What are some of the desires that you notice in yourself that you, I guess, like lesson learned from that and how do you apply that into the work as a VC? Yeah, um, good question. 
I think specific to VC, I think more of these are, are personal things. And not all of these are bad, by the way. Having models or desires isn't that, right? For example, admiring, you know, the three folks we just mentioned, mm-hmm. right? Uh, oh, I, I really admire Fred Wilson from Union Square. And I'm aware of that desire to kind of be like him. And so maybe I will, you know, publish more uh, public investment theses. So I think a lot of them are very healthy and positive, right? Uh, so I don't think there should be a negative connotation around it. I think it's more just being aware of what affects you. And being aware that you may have that influence and where that is coming from, that's what I'd encourage more than just, you know, necessarily choosing or, or, or being thinking about different desires. I see. Leaning more into the positive desire and letting go more of the negative desire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, imagine you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage venture capitalists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would tweet something around my kind of crypto infrastructure thesis. I would challenge a lot of real estate VCs if they actually understand the back end of the crypto infrastructure side. And if crypto systems today can actually work at scale uh, without new platform companies. <laughs> so probably something along those lines. Maybe I, I will tweet it now that we're talking about it here. <laughs> <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. I think that's a great way to end off the conversation. So Chris, I really enjoy learning about your storage, your background, some of the formative experience growing up in New York, living abroad, your time at Stanford studying management science and engineering, getting involved with many few fellowships, Stanford Women in Business and various internship experience, your time working at Canvas Ventures, initially as a company scout and then sourcing various investment across sector, enterprise, fintech, and data, your current role at Lux Capital investing at the Nexus, a Web3 data infrastructure and application AI and ML. But I, you know, I think the best thing that I learned is like how transparent you are with open sourcing your investment thesis, ranging from API first economy to data infrastructure to currently crypto and Web3 world. Uh, And finally, it's kind of like the way you always try to add value into your community via to, you know, arrays or various personal community events that you're putting on. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to take a look, connect and, you know, follow up with Grace if they either interested in, you know, working for any of the portfolio company blocks or just want to, you know, maybe Android invest if, if they're interested. Um, yeah, this is a very well, wide-ranging conversation and a lot. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you again for having me. would love to hear from folks on the podcast too, to the extent they're, they're building the crypto space in particular or just want to get to know Lux better. So thank you again and have a great rest of your week. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.